Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Birth control and abortion are constant flashpoints in contemporary politics, and they're often described as signs of a rapidly changing society. But women have always had ways, though not always quite as effective, uh, to control family size through contraception, and early American women were no exception. Understanding the role that reproductive rights has played in American history provides critical context to today's debates. Have we always had these kinds of debates? How did Americans think about abortion in the late 18th century or the 19th century? So we're here to shed light on some of those questions. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Wow, we have some truly generous listeners. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We're so honored to have listeners all over the world, a global community that's reflected in our incredible auger and excavator level patrons. Lauren and Edward in Ohio, Denise in Albany, Maddie in Texas, Maggie in Oregon, Danielle in Idaho, Lisa in British Columbia, Agnes in Iceland, Iris in Washington, Maria in Germany, and Colin, Susan, and Peggy right here with us in Buffalo. Thank you from the bottom of our historian hearts. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Women have always been able to use various methods to avoid conception or induce very early abortion. Right. And it's also important to understand that birth control was not invented in a lab by doctors or scientists. That knowledge originated from our collective folk culture and from centuries old female knowledge. Essentially, women have been practicing birth control since time immemorial. Some of these methods were quite successful. For example, barrier methods like condoms, diaphragms, and pessaries have been used for centuries. We have evidence from the 16th century BCE that Egyptian and Mesopotamian women used pessaries made out of balled-up linen that was soaked in a mixture of acacia, honey, and ground dates. They inserted these into the vagina like a tampon. Gum from the acacia tree ferments into lactic acid, which can act as a spermicide, so this method of birth control was probably very effective. Aristotle advised women to smear olive or cedar oil in their vaginas to prevent pregnancy. Other primitive spermicides included honey, resin, balsam tree juice, and white lead. White lead. And white lead. Um, <laughs> Women in first century CE India inserted a tampon of linen dipped in ghee, which is clarified butter, 
and honey into their vaginas to prevent unwanted pregnancies. And then probably the simplest method of contraception involves the removal of sperm from the vaginal canal. Uh, There is evidence that ancient Hebrew women expelled ejaculate from their vaginas using forceful contractions of their Kegel muscles. And there are women in certain parts of Australia and the South Pacific today that practice contraception in the same way. Uh, Ancient Greek women were told to sneeze and jump to expel ejaculates from their bodies. Wow, this is all very hands free. Yes. <laughs> I've never. Jump and um, wipe. Exactly. We should probably um, put a disclaimer on this one. Yeah, do it for a disclaimer. Not 100% effective. <laughs> um, another method women have relied on is the rhythm method. So that if they could control their partner's sexual urges, which not all women have that power, they could organize their sexual relationship around their fertile and non-fertile days. And then there is the tried and true coitus interruptus, which can have about a 75% success rate. But this also relies on a willing partner and one that has the power to direct his orgasms. Uh, Other methods of contraception may not have been as effective as one may have liked. Uh, After the fall of the Roman Empire, European women were advised to wear the testicles of a weasel on their thigh or a weasel's foot around their neck to prevent pregnancy. Weasel testicles? Weasel testicles. So one may ask, was it the magical properties of the weasel testicles or the fact that there were weasel testicles around there? Oh, that, bit, that, that, that possibly made sex less attractive. <laughs> <is a> deterrent. <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, obviously there are kind of myriad ways that women have prevented pregnancies, but we're going to turn our focus to North America. Birth rates in British North America were high compared to fertility rates in England, and many took notes of the fecundity of the British colonies. In 1698, colonial Pennsylvania It was said that, quote, seldom any young married woman but hath a child in her belly or one upon her lap. Uh, One 1756 Pennsylvania account marveled at the fruitfulness of the country. Uh, And this account said that a Joseph Coburn, quote, had the blessing to have his wife have twins, his cow two calves, and his ewe two lambs all in one night. However, birth rates in what would become the United States drastically drop among white women after the revolution. A rural woman of free status in North America could expect to have about eight or nine children in the mid-18th century. By the early 19th century, that same woman could expect to have about four to six children. Which is still so many children. That is still a lot of children. Um, to me. So, um... As the economy moved to a more industrial-based economy, the monetary value of large families decreased. The high cost of the urban dwelling and decrease of monetary contribution that children could give to the family economy made children cost more than they could contribute. So, of course, this wasn't the case everywhere, but we start to see a slowly spreading general trend over the last, really, five centuries of decreasing family size. Historian Susan Klepp argues that a historic moment during and after the American Revolution, when intellectual, social, and economic change reciprocated with emerging individual, class, and national aspirations, 
began a, a movement from lifelong childbearing to truncated fertility patterns among uh, women of free status. And this trend toward lower birth rates for free white women coincided with a similar fertility transition in post-revolutionary France. Uh, leading Klepp to postulate that free white women took the Enlightenment ideals of these two revolutions and literally embodied them, so to speak. Perhaps the most common form of contraception was breastfeeding. Women are generally less fertile when breastfeeding, so it was exceedingly common for women to breastfeed for at least two years. This helped to space children to one every two years. In New England in the late 18th and early 19th century, this was the demographic norm, which means women were actively doing something to slow their fertility. In 1809, Margaret Izzard Manigold advised her daughter that it was, quote, less fatiguing to the Constitution to nurse this one than to bring forth another, end quote. This shows us that white colonial women were thinking about their family size and were actively trying to slow their fertility. It was not an accident that birth rates were falling. For the most part, as is true today, women remained largely in control of their fertility. Women were the ones that had the wisdom of how to space their births, how to prevent conception and use birth control, how to restore the menses when necessary, and how to produce an abortion. To understand both birth control and abortion during the 18th and early 19th century, it's imperative to understand what restoring the menses meant. Until the mid-19th century, women's reproductive health was understood in terms of a balance of bodily fluids based on the Galenic humoral theory of medicine. So sickness and ill health were caused by blockages or imbalance in the fluids of the body. To get better, those balances between the humors, blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm had to be restored by, say, vomiting, bleeding, peeing, voiding the bowels, or menstruating. Uh, people living up until the mid-19th century still understood the body in this way of you know, balance and flow, and so therefore their experience of illness was different than ours is today because they perceived the body in a different way than we do today. The body was in a state of balance or unbalance, and so remedies such as bleeding and purging would be practiced in order to get the individual body back into health. So a blockage of the menses could be a sign of imbalance because the body was not purging itself on its monthly schedule and the backup of menstrual blood could lead to ailments in other areas of the body. In a sense, it's easier to understand why 18th century patients and doctors might speak of, say, breast milk escaping through the menses, or urine escaping through the saliva. Orifices were just points where the body could expel these excess matters or humors. And I want to point out that it's that it's actually, I mean, it sounds crazy, you know, bleeding sounds like a crazy remedy, you know, to bleed someone or whatever, but it's actually very rational mm -hmm. um, given the way that they understood the body. Sure. Right. Hey, you have a fever and your face is really red. That means that you have too much blood in your body. We have to let some go. Like it's actually 
rational and based on observation. It's not like based on like magic or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And that's I think that's, you know, kind of what we're trying to get at when we say like they experienced illness in a different way, right? Because they understood the body in a Mm -hmm. different way. So, yeah. So if we understand that sickness was caused by blockages or imbalances, um, it was important to put those things back into balance by, say, vomiting or, or peeing, avoiding the bowels. So, you know, if a woman was premenopausal and she didn't get her period, this was often understood as an imbalance, not necessarily a pregnancy. Being pregnant was simply not considered as a real option until quickening or when the women experienced the fetus begin to move in the womb. And so this meant that a pregnancy was considered more of a blockage of the menses until somewhere around 15 to 24 weeks of gestation when the quickening happens. Right. Quickening was believed by the Greeks to be the point of ensoulment, when the fetus became another person, formed enough to be inhabited with a soul. By the 18th century, quickening was understood as the point when the fetus became more than an inanimate object. Once movement happened, the fetus was now alive. It is at this moment of quickening that a woman could feel the fetus moving inside her and be sure that she was, in fact, pregnant. This put the domain of pregnancy specifically in how women experienced their bodies. The large, hard stomachs of the dropsical or worm-infested or malnourished could very much look like the stomach of a pregnant woman. And so, when a woman didn't have her monthly menses and didn't feel the quickening, it could be contributed to rheumatism, consumption, pleurisy, intestinal worms, or a host of other really fun ailments attributed to an unnatural stoppage of the menses. To get the body back to a normal state, a resumption of the menses was in order. To restore this balance, women took herbal remedies and medicines that were designed to, quote unquote, remove the blockage and restore their menses or their periods, right? And these are called amimagogues. These herbal remedies, like the contraceptive methods that we spoke about at the top of the show, um, you know, this knowledge has been been passed from healer to healer and mother to daughter for centuries. So, for example, some of this, uh, you know, what we would consider folk medicine uh, was was passed down generations of women living in Mexico. The Barbasco wild yam uh, was eaten to prevent pregnancy. And modern scientists actually use the same Barbasco yam to make the first birth control pills by extracting progestin from it. Um, So, you know, this is one of those kind of instances where these uh, herbal remedies probably were pretty useful, right? Uh, Hippocrates wrote down herbal recipes to induce menstruation that he had gathered from women whose traditions of medicine were already thousands of years old. These same methods for inducing menstruation for contraception were published by Peter of Spain before he was made Pope John the 21st in 1276, right? So uh, lots of examples of these kind of amenagogues, uh, you know, being written down and used for centuries. Right. And then they're kind of incorporated into more modern, modern medicine. Med- yeah. Right, right. In the Americas, the Hopi and Tiwa used the Indian paintbrush plant as a contraceptive. 
Paiute, Washoe, and Shoshone tribes drank a tea made from false hellebore root to prevent pregnancy. Blue cohash was perhaps the most commonly used among many tribes as an abortifacient, as well as to induce labor. It's still touted among present-day herbalists as a tea that can bring on labor, as well as easing period cramps and bloating. During the 18th and 19th century, the Amimagog, or Recipe to Restore Menses, most commonly mentioned in health manuals uh, read by Euro-Americans, was European Savin, or the American Juniper, or Red Cedar Plant. Aloe, rue, pennyroyal, tansy, mint, lavender, ginger, and many other abortifacient herbs were also recorded. Seneca steak root became a commodity for its amenagogic benefits and was harvested in the South and shipped to Philadelphia, where it was sold by Benjamin Franklin and others in the 1740s. Most of these herbs were dried and steeped to make tea or ground up into powder form. Starting in the middle of the 18th century, commercial amenagogues were sold as Hooper's female pills. Dr. Ryan's worm-destroying sugar plums, highly serviceable to the female sex, and other such marketable names. Health manuals written in English listed amenagogues specifically as a means to restore or unblock the menses. German-language health manuals from Pennsylvania, printed between 1762 and 1778, listed the same amenagogues for restoring the menses, but these identical recipes could also, quote, expel dead fruit, end quote. Midwifery manuals later in the century from Pennsylvania gave the same recipes in expelling the fetus, quote, be it alive or dead, end quote. Common books listing amenagogues could easily be found during the 18th and 19th centuries. William Buchan's Domestic Medicine, first published in 1792, listed several ways a missed menstrual period could be restored. He also listed numerous causes of abortion later in the book. Samuel K. Jennings' book, The Married Lady's Companion, had its second printing in 1808 and listed several amenagogic abortifacients. In 1910, Joseph Brevitt's The Female Medical Repository was published in Baltimore and listed many amenagogues after cataloging multiple external causes of abortion such as falls and jumping. He added an asterisk and a footnote in the American edition, deploring the, quote, horrid depravity of human weakness to procure abortion by these means, end quote. And the fact that he had to make this aside stresses the fact that women were using these means in these books to induce abortion. Right. He wouldn't be complaining about that if it wasn't happening. (laughs) Right, right. So we learn a lot about early American ideas about abortion uh, from printed books and pamphlets and the advertisements for these abortifacients. And we also glean a lot of information about early birth control and abortion from early court records. The 1745 Connecticut case of Rex v. Hallowell provides a rare and well-documented look at abortion in New England. In this case, Sarah Grosvenor became pregnant by her lover Amasa Sessions in 1742. They were both children of well-to-do families in the town of Pomfret and needed to cover up their illicit affair. Sessions procured an abortifacient potion from the self-proclaimed practitioner of physic, John Hallowell. Later that month, Sarah admitted to her younger sister that she was pregnant, but had been, quote, taking the trade to remove it. 
The trade was a commonly used word for an abortifacient in New England, and the fact that Sarah and her sister understood what this word meant sheds light on the commonality of abortion in this era. After taking multiple doses of the potion, Sarah believed that she was still pregnant and did not want to take more as she, quote, thought it an evil. John Hollowell convinced her that she would die if she did not restore her natural balance of humors and that the fetus was most certainly dead. So she agreed to let Hollowell deliver her, but told him to stop if he detected any signs of life in the fetus, i.e. she's letting him kind of get in there and operate on her. Yeah, like induce birth, induce a birth. Like a partial birth? Yeah, yeah, like to go ahead and like get out whatever is in her, essentially. Yeah. So um, we'll just pause for a second here and point out it's 1742, so mid-18th century. We see in this court record ideas of quickening changing. Um, Sarah is trying to return her menses, but she had an inclination that she's pregnant, um, but she hasn't felt the quickening yet, nor has she passed any, quote, fruit. But she still asks Hallowell to stop if he detects any life. Right. So so there's a lot going on there. Uh, you know, it seems like she believes that she is pregnant, even though she hasn't felt the quickening, but she still uh, needs to restore, you know, quote unquote, restore her menses. Right. And so it's I think it's really interesting that it's actually Hallowell saying you're going to get sick. So he either is generally concerned about her health, assuming that the quote unquote fruit, i.e. the fetus, is still in her womb and needs to come out uh, or or she's going to get sick, right? In modern words, she's going to get a nasty infection and she needs a DNC or, uh, you know, he, he basically wants to get rid of this problem like ASAP, right? Right. And so like this tells us that the idea of restoring the menses was in some was sometimes probably like tongue in cheek like people were like oh yeah restoring my men- the menses like wink right it's like it's an in- indication that this idea of quickening is changing right that that mm-hmm. that that understanding that quickening is not necessarily the point of pregnancy but yet i still need to restore my menses you know mm-hmm. yeah Court testimony by Sarah's sister, Zerfia Grosvenor, states that Hollowell took an instrument from his bag and inserted it inside Sarah. The record is unclear on what type of instrument he used. The curette, a metal instrument used to induce abortion, was invented in France in 1723. It is possible that Hollowell used a curette in this instance, but he also could have used any number of implements, such as a sharpened piece of slippery elm. The ensuing graphic testimony accused Hollowell of trying to, quote, take the child away through force, which triggered Sarah to faint and caused Hollowell to leave town. Two days later, Sarah delivered a stillborn infant. Ten days later, Sarah became sick with convulsions and fever and died shortly thereafter. Two and a half years after Sarah's death, rumors began to spread about a murderous abortion, which piqued the interest of two county magistrates who brought the case of Sarah Grosvenor's death to trial. There were no statutes, laws on abortion in either America or England at the time, and so the charges were brought because of Sarah's death, not necessarily the abortion. If Sarah hadn't died, no one would have been any the wiser. 
The trial initially went forward, charging all parties in the murder of Sarah, but failed on technical grounds. In a separate trial in 1747, John Hollowell was convicted of the, quote, high-handed misdemeanor of attempting to destroy both Sarah's health and the fruit of her womb. Hallowell was sentenced to 29 lashes and two hours of public humiliation at the town gallows. Rex v. Hallowell allows us to explore the use of abortifacients. This case does not explicitly say what kind of uh, physic or potion Sarah took, just that it was in powder form. And so it's evident from the court documents that the individual involved with the case were familiar with abortifacients, even if they were unsure of how to make them. Mm -hmm. In another court case in 1812, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled in Commonwealth v. Bangs that an abortion before quickening was not a crime. In this case, Isaiah Bangs prepared and administered an abortifacient potion to a woman. He was freed by the justices because it could not be proven, quote, that the woman was quick with child at the time, end quote. Quickening was part of the woman's understanding of her own body. There was no pregnancy there because the woman had not experienced the quickening or movement of the fetus. However, the precedent set by Commonwealth v. Bangs began to be challenged throughout the 19th century as lawmakers began to make the sale of abortifacients illegal. However, women continued to grow their own herbs like pennyroyal, tansy, and rue and concoct their own remedies, passing that knowledge through chains of interconnected women. Additionally, home remedies to, quote, cleanse the womb and restore the menses were commonly printed in home health manuals. Massachusetts doctor Charles Knowlton advised women to douche with a syringe filled with a solution of alum and infusions of oak, hemlock bark, or raspberry leaf after intercourse in his 1832 manual, The Fruits of Philosophy, or The Private Companion of Young Married People. Dr. Frederick Hollis's book, The Marriage Guide, printed continuously from 1850 to 1875, touted the benefits of douching after intercourse. I love me some Dr. Frederick Hollis. I've learned about him in my history of sex class. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. He was he was like a sex educator, and he traveled around the country um, educating people about their own sexuality and their own bodies about their own bodies yeah so he was caught up in an obscenity trial because he you know the comp stocks of the world couldn't handle it of course um but how, <laughs> so, how dare people know what their naughty bits look like um, enslaved women also had contraceptive knowledge, but were under increased pressure to not use them because babies benefited their masters by increasing their wealth. Masters were constantly concerned that their slave women were using methods to stop pregnancies. However, some enslaved women were able to control their fertility on their own terms. Historian Deborah Ray White chronicled how several women whose masters deemed them infertile went on to have multiple children after emancipation. Historian Deirdre Cooper Owen cites the example of an enslaved woman who assured her master's doctor that the baby she'd recently given birth to was a planned pregnancy, and she had decided it would be her final one. Scholar Lee's Perrin has found that formerly enslaved people spoke often about the use of cotton root as a contraceptive. Additionally, black midwives were important in the gynecological and obstetrical care of enslaved women and carefully passed their knowledge on to the women they took care of. 
Midwifery was the domain of women for centuries, and it was not uncommon for midwives to be skilled in preventing pregnancy alongside their skills in caring for laboring women. However, during the 19th century, the medical profession was becoming progressively specialized and self-regulated. Physicians increasingly attempted to separate themselves from lay healers, midwives, and folk doctors by taking on the name regulars. Regulars tended to be graduates of medical school or those that practiced with them. They regarded their advancing position as important as the field of law or theology, and they intensely opposed what they considered quack theories. In a Foucauldian sense, the medical knowledge that the regulars claimed became a source of power in the larger system of 19th century civilization. It wasn't until the fight between the regulars and the irregulars that gynecological medicine was masculinized. In other words, as long as women maintained control over this aspect of their lives, doctors had less professional power and they did not have a corner on the medical market. In addition to fighting for a level of prestige, regulars were also concerned with the numbers of irregulars that were cutting into their profits and livelihoods. One study of Rochester, New York during the mid-19th century found that many physicians had to work in additional areas of employment in order to earn a respectable living. In an attempt to protect their medical ideas and sources of revenue, regulars began pressing for increased legislation pertaining to all medical practice. As a result, between the years of 1821 and 1841, 10 of the 26 states in the Union enacted uh, statutes in regard to abortion. However, these laws outlawed abortions after quickening and penalized the medical practitioner, not the woman. Legislators pushed on by the regulars were concerned that irregulars were performing risky operations and directing women to take toxic substances, which put their lives in danger. Connecticut became the first state to enact a law specifically pertaining to abortion in 1821. Between Section 13 pertaining to intent to kill or rob, and Section 15 dealing with the secret delivery of a bastard child, Section 14 stated, quote, every person who shall administer to any deadly poison or any other noxious and destructive substance, thereby to murder or thereby to cause or procure the miscarriage of any woman, then be quick with child, shall be thereof duly convicted, unquote. This prescribed into law what had already been practiced in common law and upheld in Commonwealth v. Banks, that a woman quick with child could not be given anything that would purposely cause abortion. By 1841, 10 states and one territory had enacted laws pertaining to abortion. Five states explicitly stated abortion was illegal after quickening. The other five stated abortion was illegal at any time during pregnancy. In reality, the laws were unenforceable as there were no pregnancy tests at that time. Four of the 10 states listed their abortion laws under poisoning. Every abortion law during this period was enacted within larger omnibus crime and punishment bills. Uh, these, were, these were essentially large revisions of criminal code that had a lot of alterations to current laws, right? And there was no major coverage of the enactment of these laws and revisions in either the popular press or the religious press during this time. So they were kind of just like lumped in with a bunch of other kind of major overhauls in these crime bills. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, it, and it's weird because I feel like nowadays any law having anything to do with abortion is like 
front page news and it's like done on purpose and it's like the years of planning. And so this is more of a sort of quiet um, changing of these statutes sort of. Yeah. It's not until after Roe v. Wade that it becomes kind of, I mean, well, as you, you know, well, I'll get into a little bit of how it does kind of enter the, the news, so to speak, but it's not until after uh, 1973 that, that, that our current, uh, world of abortion really comes into play mm-hmm. as far as it being a media sensation. Beginning in the 1840s, there was a perceived surge in the volume of abortions being performed in the United States. Historian James C. Moore estimates one abortion for every five or six live births occurred during this time. One reason was the increasing commercialization and advertisement of abortifacients in popular papers and magazines. However, it's really impossible to know if, in fact, more abortions were being performed or just if more people were paying attention. The infamous Madame Rastel began her abortion business in New York during the 1830s. She was arrested for the first time in 1841, and New York papers printed her name and occupation, actually giving her great publicity. By the 1840s, Madame Rastel's abortion practice had branches in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Street peddlers would sell her abortifacient pills throughout neighborhoods, and they were available by mail order as well. But by no means was Madame Rastel alone. A quick look through most any paper in the 1840s would show multiple advertisements for abortion providers and abortifacients. Dr. Peter's French renovating pills were sold as a, quote, blessing to mothers. And although very mild and prompt in their operations, pregnant females should not use them as they invariably produce a miscarriage, end quote, i.e., Hey, this is what you use to do this. So it's like yeah. <laughs> they were they were advertised not not explicitly as like abortion pills, but you know, as something that can help you get your period and hey, don't use it for this cuz this is what it will do kind of thing. Right. You know, tongue in cheek. Wink wink. Wink wink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The rise in sales of abortifacients may have only produced a low amount of actual abortions, yet the number of pills sold indicates that women were trying them in high numbers and then possibly resorting to surgical means if the abortifacients didn't work. A study by a physician pharmacologist in Syracuse, New York, in the late 1860s found six out of ten different abortifacient pills he purchased to have high abortifacient properties, two of the ten to be mild laxatives, and the other two were inert drugs. Thus, women could achieve an abortion through commercial abortifacient pills if they knew where to look or were lucky or unlucky enough to happen upon the right ones, depending on what they wanted to do. (laughs) Exactly, right. A second possible cause of the increased abortion usage during this time was a trend among white married Protestant women to utilize abortion as a means of limiting family size. The white Protestant American family had been decreasing in size since the revolution and in the 1840s saw an upsurge in deliberate family planning by middle-class women. This prompted a serious backlash by regulars and nativists. Married women who sought abortions were criticized for abandoning the self-sacrifice required of motherhood. Young single women who sought abortions had been pitied as helpless and troubled dependents, but married women seeking abortions had no excuse for their heartless depravity, as the editor of the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal stated in 1844. Dr. Horatio Storer, a leading opponent of abortion, equated a childless marriage as legalized prostitution. 
I mean, well, kind of, but <laughs> yeah, kind of. It kind of is. And it's funny because that's what like a lot of like, you know, precursors of the feminist movement were also saying. Right. He's like accidentally correct. There's this group I'm in called Conservatives Inadvertently Reaching the Point. And it's just sort of like this um, store <laughs> guy where it's like conservatives being like, well, if, uh, you know, if, if, um, Burger King workers can make fifteen dollars an hour. Shouldn't nurses and di- or shouldn't nurses make that much? And people are like, yeah, <laughs> correct, yeah, correct, yeah, oh uh, yeah. That's 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 where we're going, buddy. I know. Thank you. Um. Anyway, so why was there an increase in laws outlawing abortions during this period, beginning in the eighteen forties and continuing to the eighteen sixties? Well, what really freaked people out was that women who began to get abortions in higher numbers were white, middle, and upper-class Protestant women. The mid-19th century was a time of increased immigration, which spurred nativist sentiments. As native-born Protestant birth rates were declining, Catholic immigrant population numbers were on the rise. This led to grave fears of white race suicide, and that's quote-unquote race suicide, or the demographic Mm -hmm. failure of the American family, as it is also known. Native Protestants feared that Catholic immigrant populations would surpass them and that Puritan bloodlines of the, you know, of the good old 76 um, would be diminished. Essentially, native-born Americans worried that their good stock would be overrun by immigrants. Um, the fact that white native-born women were procuring abortions doubled nativist anxiety. The American Medical Association, or the AMA, formed in 1847 as a professional nationwide organization for physicians. This group of regulars continued with increased fervor to push for enacting more abortion and general medical legislation. So Horatio Storer, who I mentioned previously, was one of the most outspoken opponents of abortion. He spearheaded the AMA crusade in 1857 against criminal abortion. And this campaign really gained momentum among regulars across the country and put enormous pressure on lawmakers to enact more abortion legislation. It should be noted that not all physicians were on board. One Boston physician stated anonymously that Storer, quote, seems to have thrown out of consideration the life of the mother, making that of the unborn child appear of far more consequence, even should the mother have a dozen dependent on her for their daily bread, end quote. As this quote suggests, not all regulars viewed abortion in the hard and fast lines that the outspoken majority did. The AMA set out to influence legislation and public opinion. Regulars bemoaned the country's general demoralization as attributed to the public's ignorance on quickening doctors and irregulars performing abortions to make money and retain patients, and lax laws against abortion. The AMA determined to deconstruct the prevalent quickening idea among the general populace by lecturing their patients and producing books and manuals debunking the quickening doctrine. They largely succeeded, and by 1868, 30 of the 37 states in the Union had abortion laws, and the common discourse on abortion was changing. Only three of the state laws deemed abortion after quickening a crime. Almost all of these laws 
held the woman receiving the abortion liable as well as the practitioner. But it's important to point out that these crimes always carried lesser sentences than homicide cases. Moore also found that abortions tended to be rather costly, which further enraged those physicians who refused to practice them. He found that regulars repeatedly testified that the abortion business was lucrative. Even when women turned to the commercial abortifacient trade, costs could still vary wildly from $5 up to $300. Right. So those regulars were also kind of jealous, right, that they weren't able to tap into this really lucrative trade. Right. right? Well, give the people what they want. (laughs) Damn it. Between the years 1841 to 1868, the country made a dramatic change from one that listened to women's perceptions of their bodies in relation to their pregnancy and fetal movement to one that specifically rejected that concept of quickening and insisted that all pregnancies be carried to term. The AMA declared that pregnancy and childbirth were now the domain of physicians and became medical conditions to be monitored and controlled by doctors, rather than within the purview of women alone. Outlawing abortion was directly related to the attempt of the AMA to place medical knowledge in the hands of elite professional physicians, as well as to stop those who practice abortion from getting rich off of it. By roughly 1870, most states had made it illegal to end a pregnancy after quickening. The legislation pushed by regulars continued, and by 1880, every state in the Union except Kentucky had laws making abortion illegal at any stage, except when deemed necessary for the women's health by a respected physician. These laws changed when a pregnancy began. Quickening stopped being the turning point of pregnancy, and instead, pregnancy began when menses stopped. Most laws also made the advertisement of abortion services or abortifacients illegal. The Comstock Act of 1873 drastically increased the regulation of advertising women's services. Abortions were by no means eliminated as they were gradually pushed underground. At a time of increased scientific knowledge and ability to make abortions safer for women, physicians were refusing to perform them, making illegal abortion increasingly more dangerous for women who needed them. As abortions were being pushed underground with increasing regularity, discourse on the matter grew hyperbolic. Physicians still complained about the public's acceptance of abortion before quickening, and they increasingly used more shocking vocabulary and stories to repulse the public. By the 1870s, professional and popular journals were filled with the abortion issue. The New York Times continually ran salacious stories highlighting the evil of the age. In 1888, the Chicago Times ran a month-long undercover story charging that abortion was widely available in the nation's second-largest city, despite a strict Illinois law against it. Undercover journalists posed as married women who were seeking abortion services from doctors and midwives. They found that most physicians and midwives were willing to perform abortions, and if they did not, most were willing to refer the undercover journalists to someone that did. Dr. George M. Chamberlain, one of Chicago's most prestigious doctors, member of the AMA and the Illinois State Medical Society, agreed to perform an abortion on one undercover journalist. 
Dr. Milton J., dean of the Bennett Medical College, also agreed to perform one. The paper named 48 physicians who agreed to help the undercover journalists obtain an abortion. 34 agreed to do it themselves. 12 referred her to another doctor who would perform an abortion. One referred her to a midwife, and one sold her abortifacient pills and sent her to another doctor. 32 of the 48 doctors were regulars, several belonging to the AMA. Many others belonged to the local medical society. So overall, the story highlighted that, you know, quote unquote, respectable physicians with close ties to respectable ladies were frequently performing abortions. The undercover journalist commented on her surprise that it was, quote, married society women more than poor shop girls and immigrants who were procuring abortions. But this also shows the conflicting relationship that many regulars had with abortion. And despite the AMA rhetoric, these physicians treated abortion as a medical procedure in agreement with their Hippocratic oath. Middle and upper class women had access to private doctors who relied on them for payment. Plus, women were normally the access to the rest of the family. If a private doctor wanted to be a physician to the family, he needed to give the mother the care that she might be asking for. And often, physicians agreed that careful family planning helped their patrons to lead healthier and longer lives. The Chicago expose also went into working class neighborhoods where most obstetrics were performed by midwives. There, the journalists also found abortion was accessible. The paper published the names of 16 midwives who agreed to perform an abortion or who would refer the undercover journalist to somebody that would. Some of the midwives that refused offered instead to keep the undercover journalist posing as a pregnant woman with them until she delivered and then would help her uh, would help her in finding a foundling house for the baby after it was born. Regardless of the fact that both working class and middle upper class women were all using abortions, midwives who catered to a largely working class immigrant and black clientele came under strict scrutiny from regulars. In their further push to masculinize obstetrics and gynecology, Chicago specialists and obstetrics won increased state supervision over midwives in 1896, 1908, and 1915, largely by identifying midwives as abortionists. Yet a 1917 study at the Washington University Dispensary in St. Louis found that physicians and midwives attributed in equal amounts to the illegal abortions that they tracked. In a New York study of 111 convictions for illegal abortions between 1925 and 1950, investigators found that midwives were responsible for 22.5% of the cases and physicians for 27.9%. So although these numbers do not give definitive results for rural and urban populations, it's a pretty good indication that abortions were being performed by both doctors and midwives in equal numbers. Most of the available numbers on abortion are from deaths and criminal cases or from hospitals admitting women with complications from illegal abortions. It's unknown how many abortions were executed safely and without comment. Most discourse on abortion happened in private spaces, between families, and among networks of females. Records of the earliest European and American birth control clinics of the early 20th century show that a majority of the patients who visited those clinics for the first time had actually previously used contraception. So even though some doctors and politicians railed against family planning, women were doing it anyway. For example, in 1907, President Theodore Roosevelt Uh, expressed the feeling of the times when he said that a white Protestant woman who avoided pregnancy was, quote, a criminal against the race. 
But let's not lose sight of the racism and the xenophobia at play in these freakouts. They were freaked out because the white, quote unquote, old stock of the country were the ones that were most successful at managing their fertility because their race and class privilege allowed them to do so. So we are going to end this discussion here for now. Um, We pick up on this topic in our episode entitled Abortion and Birth Control Before Roe v. Wade. Um, You can search your feed or the website for that episode. Please remember to leave us a five-star review. You can also become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash digpodcast for as little as $1 a month. And we really appreciate all of our current patrons. You keep the lights on. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you later. See ya. Um... I was wondering what that sound was. Feeling eyes, obstetrics, and yellow bile, yellow bile to induce mistrust. After taking multiple doses, (laughs) that's a good one. (laughs) I think I'm done. This law, thus prescribed into law, (laughs) just here. Hold on abortifacient potion for from or the american junior aloe rule the amen the amenima pope john holy why can't i speak the 21st i know no it's not that <laughs> okay. it's more that i just am like <laughs> talking like this and then i stop and then i'm talking april makes me do the roman numerals for her <laughs> oh yeah no that's that that wasn't it. it was more i just was pissed that okay. i this whole paragraph is a mess I'm going to start it over. Okay. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.